It's Flat Out RC time. Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast. My name is Andrew Sill. I'm the host of this program. Coming to you live from Melbourne, Australia, the land down under. Now, what are we doing this podcast? We talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis, and drones. If it flies and it's controlled by a radio control transmitter, we like it. Good show coming up, a really good show. We've got uh, Steve Richardson joining uh, joining us. And Steve Richardson's been on the show before, but uh, I think I may have mentioned a, a few episodes back how I'm trying to bring in some experts in, in their field to come and give us a bit of an insight uh, as to different aspects of aero modeling, building planes, things like that. So Steve Richardson is, is coming in to talk about servo selection and control surface hookups. Uh, which is a mandatory thing, really, for all of us with our model aeroplanes. Uh, Richo's a, a smart guy, been you know, a top-level builder. Uh, so stay tuned for our chat with Steve Richardson. But uh, before we get into that, let's see what's been happening around the traps. Last week, I talked about the new E-Flight Draco uh, Two meter wingspan foamy stole plane, bush plane, uh, modeled after the famous Draco Wilger built by Mike Patey. And if you don't know who Mike Patey is, just jump onto YouTube, go and have a look at his videos. I watch all of them, absolutely love watching his builds and uh, inspired by the work that he does. But uh, it's just, there's just so much news about that Draco plane. It seems to be really popular. I was talking to one of the local distributors down here in Australia uh, who sells all the uh, Horizon Hobby products. At, and they said that they're going to sell out very, very soon and they haven't even landed in the country. So they're hoping to get some uh, you know, first allocation. And I think it's going to be one of those planes where they're going to have to keep on building it for a while just to meet demand. But the scale detail in that thing for a foamy is just phenomenal. It's a next level kind of thing. But I had a good day today, actually, uh, moving on from... E-Flight Draco, uh, I, my f- flying club held an event. It's the first model flying event that I've been to, I think, in around 12 months. Uh, it was at my club, my home club, the uh, Pakenham District Aero Models Club, p and And it was their Monty Tyrrell scale day. Monty Tyrrell was a, a, a man that was involved in the, establishing the club where they are now in uh, Pakenham, uh, and so this annual event runs in his name, and it's really a scale fun fly, anything from scratch build, kit build to ARFs, uh, anything. And I'll tell you what, uh, it didn't disappoint. They they kept it pretty low key, which I think a lot of pe- uh, a lot of people this year will be keeping their events a bit more low key than normal due to the COVID uh, situation and you know the potential of changing circumstances. Even though here in Australia we're doing pretty damn well compared to the rest of the world. Currently, as I sit here in Victoria, Australia, we have no cases of COVID, so we're pretty free to do what we uh, what we like. But that could change at any minute if there's a bit of a even a, a slight little outbreak here, they'll uh, shut things down. So uh, lower key than normal, but the quality of the aircraft was amazing. And uh, stay tuned; I do have a video that I'm hoping to get out uh, shortly. Uh, might be out by the time this podcast comes out. Actually, it may well be. Uh, we'll see how we, how I go with time. Uh, took a whole bunch of photographs as well. I haven't, I haven't used my camera gear in over a year. Uh, so if, if you follow Flat Out RC on Instagram, you'll see photos, and a lot of those photos were, were shot in 2019. 
So now trying to build up the library again. Got some great shots. Um, highlights of the day, Steve Wilcox. He's a known jet guy down here in the uh, southern part of Australia. And he bought two beautiful jets. A, um, I think it was a BAE Hawk and a Starfighter. And both were massive. We're talking some serious size here. Uh, and he flew them beautifully. Everyone absolutely loved it. I think he won the uh, the competition for the uh, the best uh, best model of the day. But actually, everybody brought their best planes, which was good to see. And there was what I really enjoyed about the event today was the uh, the diversity in the aircraft. We have everything from like stall aircraft, like a like a stork, which was amazing, amazing how that, that thing can fly so slow and get off the ground in centimeters, kind of thing. Uh, through the jets, of course, a number of different jets. Uh, Richard Wiggins had his uh, pilot RC decathlon out there. We had Cubs, mini Cubs, the uh, X Cubs, the 60ccs, a couple of those. Keith Quig and uh, Adam Barker had theirs. I even flew. I took my 3D Hobby Shop Bigfoot, which um, I really love because, to be honest, when I fly scale planes, sometimes I get bored just flying circuits. Um, I like something that. You know, I like scale planes, but I like them also to be a little bit aerobatic, throw them around, and my Bigfoot fits that bill. It's, it's like a, it's, it's cub-like, if you don't know what they are. It's it's basically based on a, a plane called a Husky, a bush plane. It's got big 16-inch Dubro inflatable wheels on it and uh, fully aerobatic, you know, you can hover the thing, knife edges beautifully, you know, you name it, it can, it can do it. And uh, so I took that out and had a lot of fun with it a lot of fun with it for one flight until one of the wing strut bolts came out loose and I lost it. So didn't have a replacement, but that doesn't matter because I was busy taking photographs and shooting a video. So really, really good to see events back and really remind me how much I missed events in the past 12 months. So stay tuned. I've got more coming. Uh, I've got a jet event coming up in a few weeks, the Wangaratta Jets. We're going to have actually next week, we'll probably have a guest on... Uh, uh, talking about that event and, and jets in general. But uh, looking forward to maintaining my jet. Really G'd up. My flying's in a good position to give it a crack. Pretty confident. So all is good in the world. Guest time. And this week's guest is Steve Richardson, as mentioned earlier. Richo's been on the show before. Um, he, oh, what can I say about him? He's he's running a, a, his own retail business called uh, RC Depot. He's the distributor in Australia for JR servos and transmitters, all that gear. Uh, but he's sort of known in the industry as uh, a guy that knows his stuff. Um, professional builder, builds uh, models for a lot of other people to a very high standard. Uh, but yeah, really, really experienced and especially very knowledgeable about plane setups and servos and things like that. So I asked him to come come back on the show, really let's you know, have a a deep dive into servos, control linkages, and hear some of his thoughts on how to select them and then what linkages. And um, and we talk about you know everything from servo horn lengths and things like that. So this is one of those really good episodes where you're going to get some some really great value from hearing from Richo like I did. So here we go. Steve Richardson talking about servos and all things that connect to it. Well, we've got Steve Richardson back in the house, in the Flat Out RC podcast house. Look, if, if you're not from these parts in Australia, uh, you probably don't know that Steve Richardson's nickname is Richo. So, Richo, thanks for joining me here on the Flat Out RC podcast. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Well, we have got you back. You are the second guest to come back uh, after Martin Pickering. And the reason why I've got you back is 
today we really want to have a deep dive into servos and control surface uh you know linkages and that kind of thing because you are the guru now just to position yourself tell us a bit about your background in in the industry and in the hobby just to bring people up to speed sure i mean i've been uh in the industry actively selling and retailing uh wholesaling product pretty much for 15 years uh been flying models for over 20. Uh, been in the iMac thing for forever, basically, but I, I was there when we started it with a few bunch of other guys, and I've been building model aircraft for myself and other people. Uh, well, I've been building professionally for the last five years, and um, I've sort of been building for other people uh, on and off, uh, probably since I've started, to be honest. So uh, I get a lot of exposure to different equipment and different models and different ways of setting them up. So you're gaining a lot of experience, uh, not not off my own back, fortunately, because I don't have to pay for all of it. I'll get to experience a lot of good things uh, with other people's really cool models. Yeah, and and but you've also got your own retail business now, haven't you? So you're the JR distributor or reseller here in Australia, aren't you? Correct. I mean, when JR restarted again, they were looking for a different avenue to uh, to sell product. I mean, the world's a different place now than what it was many years ago, but uh, retail's quite different. But I'm the JR distributor for Australia, um, bringing in the new JR products and uh, working with those guys pretty closely with the people in Japan. It's great. And I know that uh, you've been – what's the name of the business, first of all? So put- It's RC Depot Australia. That's it, RC Depot Australia. They're all online. Search them up. Um You've also been doing some work uh, commercially with, uh, well, I think it's public knowledge that Boeing have been doing a project because they publicised that uh, we had Derek Pontarola on uh, recently that was talking about that and you've been involved with that project as well, haven't you? Yeah, I was there from the start with Derek as well. I mean, uh, it, we've, I've been working for a company called RF Design who's been contracted to, well, you know, it's well well known and it's been Boeing, but uh, there's, there's not a lot we can say. that There's a fair bit of public knowledge, but we're all kept us on non-disclosure agreements, but I think everyone knows we were flying the Fistos, multiples, all fully autonomous, and uh, we did the last test up at Cloncurry, um, which fulfilled some uh, keystone elements that we had to fulfill for uh, for their contract, and that was all successful. And I've got to say, it was probably one of the best projects I've been involved in. It was uh, just really amazing to be doing something so cool and watching you know, multiple turbines, big-size aircraft take off. Uh, fully autonomously and land autonomously was uh, pretty sensational. Yeah. Well, I was saying to Derek how those Mephistos just look big. It went like some big planes and big models look, sm- you know, get smaller in the air, but those Mephistos almost like stay big, you know, as they, they are. It's it's, a, it's an impressive shape. They're a beautiful model. They're one of my favourites, to be honest. I mean, these ones are a little different to suit the purpose, but essentially they're just what you'll buy over the counter, but with a lot more gear in them. But mm. um, when you know, we don't have the canard on the top and we don't have fully moving tail planes, we've just gone for standard elevators, etc. which composite ARF were quite helpful with that kind of gear. And they're in a, a matte grey uh, paint scheme, so they're kind of, they look kind of menacing when they're all a fair distance away. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting, yeah. So it's safe to say that you've had an extensive career. And I think, you know, the reason why you know, I love talking to you is that you've got this wealth of knowledge and you've got a great way of articulating it as well. Like some of the some of the videos you did way back when you worked for Desert Aircraft Australia were just still 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 valid today and, and always looked up to those videos as being sort of a great guide. So 
we're going to be talking servos, right? So this is this is sure. part of my agenda to try to get a bit granular with some, some of our builds and things like that. And servos mm. is one of those things that I've always been intrigued with because there are so many different brands, there's so many different sizes, and there's so many different torques and speeds and all that kind of stuff. And, mm. of course, they've all been developed to suit different applications, but I think sometimes re- people really struggle to determine what servo should go in what plane. Now, it- it's it's a bit of a headbender there, and I've got to say, it's you know, since I've been involved in the RC industry, it's the part that people least understand. I think or have trouble getting a handle on. And you rely a lot on your manufacturer to give you an indication of what's really required. But horses for courses, there's many many servos there. They're different brands, but also different styles, speeds, torque ratings, as you were saying, to suit the application. But getting your head around what you actually need for your application isn't always that easy. Well, it's interesting, like you talked about the manufacturer guideline and that is something that I've always acknowledged. Like if mm-hmm. if if a, if a company like Extreme Flight said to use a 24 kilo servo on a 60cc size, you know, wing on an aileron, mm-hmm. I'm going to sit there and go, who am I to question them? They've obviously tested it and know it works. But I know plenty of people who sit there and go, oh, I don't need that. A 15 kilo servo will be fine. Um and I'm like, well, why did they say 24? And why do you think that you're right and better than them kind of thing? But we're going to break that down today, right? That's, what, that's the whole idea of this podcast. We're going to break it down. So first of all, why is it important to select the right servo for a model? Well, all models require a certain amount of torque to drive the surface that you're, that you're trying to move. And there's lots of elements you have to consider. is the, the area of the surface, the speed you're going to be carrying, and this is where geometry comes in. As you were saying before, like if they recommend a 24 kilo servo, you can fly one on a 12 kilo servo if you get your geometry correct, but you won't get the throw that they're telling you that you need. I mean, when all servos are measured for torque and power, they're all measured at one centimetre from the centre of the spline. So when you put a, a two inch or a one and a half inch arm on it, you're effectively uh, lowering your applicable torque because of the leverage is much different if you can get your head around that. Like the longer the arm, uh, the more leverage the surface that you're trying to drive has on the servo. Yeah. So, you know, technically, I mean, I've seen IMAC models, 2.3 size, 2.6 size, set up a 12 kilo servo and fly fine, but they have very minimal movement and the geometry is spot on. They use the longest arm that they, they can get on there for the maximum amount of travel that they require. Uh, so they might be using a one-inch arm and only getting 10 degrees of travel because that's all they need. Yeah. And the servo is maxed out on its resolution and it, it works. But the geometry, you've got to really figure that out. When you want to fly like Joe Stucia and you want extreme travel, you're going to run two-inch arms to get that kind of travel, you have to run a high-torque servo. Yeah. So even like, you know, if we look at scale applications and jet applications, that kind of thing, I think it's safe to say that the importance, you know, it's important to select the right servo so that you can, one, the plane can be safe and not get flutter in the air and want to combust, self-combust. Uh, yep. You want it to perform often to a certain standard. And Absolutely. If if you don't have those, if you don't have those covered, then it's, it's going to end up in a crash at some point in time. Oh, I- I can't tell you the amount of times I've seen high-speed flutter just from bad geometry, even with a really strong servo on board. Yeah. But they've used an extremely long arm and a really short horn on the control surface, 
And on the ground, it's okay. But once you get moving, it's not too bad. But when you get a bit of speed up, high speed flutter, like you won't hear it. It'll just cut the surface will just come off. And it, 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 you can put a 50 kilo server on there. If you set it up badly, you can still induce high speed flutter. It's, um, you know, the, the thing I see a lot where people fall over is they use a long arm, very little travel from the, on, on the servo side, but they'll wind it back from 100% maxed out travel back to 40%. Uh, because they're getting too much travel. And you lose a lot of resolution from this. You know, it, it, it's an ugly setup because you get a lot of stepping in the servo. You lose a lot of resolution. And you ultimately, you know, well, you can't do it. It's the worst way of doing it. It's, it's um, you're inducing problems. Well, we're going to get deeper into that. Now, um, I just thought of this question now as you were talking, that if you take, you know, we use a JR range that you know well. They've got multiple mm. different servos uh in the range mm-hmm. tell me a bit about speed and torque and that trade-off and um you know price points of you know of different servos and why 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 some servos are more expensive than others and what's that difference more sure than- i mean in a range of servos you'll find servos with plastic gears metal gears uh alloy cases full alloy cases and bigger uh, bigger output bearings, etc., and that's to suit the purpose they're intended for. I mean, a plastic case servo on a sports model of say up to 16 inch plus, you know, is is quite suitable. It's fine. It works well with plastic gear train, depending on what you're doing. But once you're starting getting a lot of travel, a bit of speed, and driving a large surface, metal gears absolutely 100 uh, percent you need that. Uh, but when you're starting to develop huge torque to drive big surfaces now when you consider with iMac models for instance in the day when we were flying three meter models it wasn't unusual to be running five rudder servos three aileron servos and and four elevator you know and two elevator servos per side um to get the torque that you're required to make those things move and the travel you require now we can set up a, a three meter airplane pretty much with one servo on an aileron now, should you do it? I recommend not. I mean, seventy you can got 70 kilo servos there. And what happens is once you're driving 70 kilo servos, uh, you get gear paint spread because of the torque that's going through them and through the little pinion pegs so that they go to full metal cases. And with our servos, for instance, we've got a two mil bigger output bearing. And all of that is to support the shaft so it doesn't deflect. You don't get gear train spread from the enormous amount of torque that you can get from those surfaces. And... You know, we, we're pretty much, for me, on a three-metre aircraft, you still need to run two servos. The, you know, and my, the reason for that is is the pressure on the gear train. Uh, when you consider we're still holding them in with four quite small screws and putting all of that load through two gear trains is much better than putting it through one. Even though the servo is very, very capable of driving 70 kilos, uh, it'll do that. But the stresses can be quite enormous. Another question come to mind, just escaped me, but it will come back to me. But um, oh no, yeah, I found, I got it, I got it back. The so why are some some servos cheap and some expensive? Uh, it's again, it's like uh, a lot of things in electronics. You can the components you be, you put on the electronics board and how you go about manufacturing that will dictate a lot of things. I mean, things can go from just usable to military grade when you're picking chips and different things to go on them. Uh, the same goes with the gear train set. The gear train set for our stuff is made in Japan uh, and the coating that goes on that to make that better 
all adds to the cost. So, I mean, it's some people are quite surprised sometimes when they buy a gear train set for a, for, for a really high-torque server. You could be paying them $60 for a gear train set. Uh, and that's to do with the machining, where it's machined, how it's done, materials used, and the coating on it as well uh, to make it last. Um, so, and the motor drive, there's another unit. I mean, all the motor drives for ours are all made in Japan, and also all the JR ones, uh, the gear train sets are all made in Japan as well. They're all assembled in Malaysia, but a lot of the key componentry is still done in Japan uh, because that's where they can get the, the, best, the best quality work done. Uh, for some of the other stuff that's made offshore from other brands, they don't go through the same kind of rigorous testing and the material choices aren't always the same. So you'll end up getting early gear train slot. Uh, uh, you, know, you find that sometimes the, the board will burn out quicker than it really should and they don't develop the torque that, that they say they will. You know, that, that's a big one for me is that I think that you know, I've had people say to me, oh, they're these $16 servos I get from Alibaba and oh, so-and-so said they're awesome and oh, they look really good and all that kind of stuff. And you know, you can put a nice housing on any servo, but when you open it up and you have a look at the gear train, the quality that's inside, you start to wonder, well, this isn't as good. It's, you know, it's not as if a JR servo can be made for 10 bucks. Um, no. And I mean, it's like anything, you know, really. I mean, quality costs money. That's, a re that's the reality of it. And, you know, one of the things we used to use in the motorcycle trade is you've got a $10 head, buy a $10 helmet. Uh, you know, reality is if you've got a, a, you know, a $10,000 jet, I've got no idea why you want to put a substandard servo or something you think will be okay, um, because someone on someone advertised it as being it's really great. You know, uh, stuff still coming out of Japan by the you know by the bigger manufacturers and Europe is good quality, and good quality does cost money. There's no question. Yeah, and I think for me, I was mentored by by our friend Ido Segev, and and he said to me one day, he said, Andrew, I don't understand why people don't buy good servos." He said, "When you think about it, it's the only it's the only thing that's connecting our thumbs to the aeroplane is the servo, and if you put a bad servo in a good aeroplane, it's going to be a bad aeroplane now." And I'm like, "That's true, Ido," and and I've always adopted the philosophy of buy good servos because. Um, when I go to the field, I want to have confidence. You know, you know when you build that airplane and you have confidence that it's going to be reliable and it's going to work the same every time. And because, mm. because, and that I think that feeling of that that confidence comes from knowing that you did it properly. You built it properly. You put the right gear in it. You you know that it's right, and that you don't have an issue in grabbing that airplane and and second guess where this is the one that it's going to fall off. Like I, I I've got this um Sebart Mythos little fifty size pattern plane. And I put yeah. this OS motor up the front, which has like a clamp mount, mount kind of on it, and yeah. it's and it's come off so many times. And I, I literally lost it again a few weeks ago, and I didn't even go to find the spinner and the prop. I just left it in the paddock somewhere. I went, that's it. <laughs> and so now every time I fly that plane, I'm always thinking, is this the flight that the propeller is going to fall off? To the point now where I'm thinking about pulling the motor off. The motor performance has been fine. It's just the propeller won't stay on the damn thing. And so now mm. I'm going, well, stuff it. I'm going to get rid of that. I'm going to put a dual sky motor in or something like that. It's got a better mount and I know that it's going to be fine. Or I'm going to sell that plane because it's like I'm losing faith in the reliability and I don't like that. So that's my my philosophy on the, on the servos as well is to buy stuff that's going to be good. And, you know, am I correct in saying this? I've got this philosophy that you can – you can pay for torque or you can pay for speed. If you want torque and speed together, you're going to pay a lot more for your servo. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, speed, 
Speed comes at the expense of torque because they change the gear train set to give you faster speed, which it's, they're changing the gearing internally, which the motor is pretty much the same, but because the gearing internally is quite different, uh, it develop, it's it's faster, but its torque rate is less. And I, I remember in the early days, there was an advertisement for a gizmo that went on top of your server, I'm talking about 20 years ago now, that would bring your nine kilo servo up to 40 kilos. And we were all in amazement, couldn't wait for this thing. But it, it took about 15 minutes to get from one side to the other side. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, so to get full travel, like you, you'd have to wait a week for it to almost go from one side to the other. It was just a, a change of gearing on this on the way it drove the top of the, yeah. it actually attached to your spline. It was just a, it was great for robotics. It was just hopeless for um, anything RC related. The speed just wasn't there. But you know, having said that, now we've still got you know the speed for the, the guys with the. The, the fast 3D guys who want to do stuff really, really quick, they're looking for speed. I mean, they're looking for Halifast style servos with lots of torque. And that stuff's done and get developed now. Like we've got a range out now that is, you know, 45 kilos and super fast. Right. And, you know, like, does it stoop me? No, it doesn't. I, I start to shake and the things all over the place, but uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't need that speed. But the younger fellas who like scaring the ground and impressing people, they do and they can use it. But, um, so, you know, things are changing and we, we find that a lot of things, like for us now, we develop a 12-volt range of servos and that's because the more torque you're putting out, the more current you're using. The more current you're using, you're getting more heat and getting rid of the heat is a difficult thing. That's why the alloy bodies and all that on the cases and fins and things to cool them down. But when you go to 12-volt, you get more power, you use less current and you actually keep the heat down. Yeah, and that look. I when I back in the day when I was selling 3D hobby shop airplanes, I asked the guys over in the US, I've got a hundred cc here. How many servos should I have on my rudder? And at that particular point in time, they said two. And they said one servo will probably drive the rudder okay, but spreading the load over the two will reduce the heat. You know, yep. and and I went okay. Well, and I've got two in in my airplanes. You know, I think. As you said, the more modern servos might change that equation a little bit. But um, I, let's just talk a bit about some of those those key key things, right? So let's talk about torque and speed to start off with, right? Mm-hmm. When it comes to selecting a servo, right? Yep. How do you determine the torque of servo that you need for that particular model, whether it be a jet, a glider, or whatever? That's awkward. That is difficult. You really got to rely a fair bit on your supplier to tell you, give you an indication of what you need. Because a lot of things come into play then is the size of the surface, the size of the control horn you're using on that surface, and where the servo's located and what length of arm you need to drive it to get it to clear the skin or whatever you do. And I find the ones under most duress seem to be flap servos. They're the ones that cop a lot of a lot of problems. You know, they, they get a hiding. They're usually tucked inside a wing. So, you know, when you're selecting servos and you've got no real information, <laughs> go for the highest torque you can get in there just to put it beyond doubt. I mean, and reality is, like, you know, uh, when you're talking with larger size servos, a 25-kilo servo and a 50-kilo servo, there's usually about $15 difference in price. There's not a lot of difference in the price of them. When you go from brushless to... Um, to you know, to callless, et cetera. Yes, there can be a difference in price there, and the performance is slightly different. It depends on how you want you know how you want to spend your money. But 
if you're looking at a 35 kilo servo and the one in the market is 45 kilos and it's only $10 more, buy that one. Put it beyond doubt. Uh, that's always my, because the geometry really coming into it, the length of the arm, the length of the control horn and the size of the surface is something you've got to take into account. And it's not an easy mathematic, you know, to sit there and go, yeah, that needs this. It depends what you're doing with it too. Yeah. Well, hundred percent agree with you. I think the, you know, especially that, that, that control surface size and we see massive surfaces on these 3d planes that, you know, big barn door ailerons and elevators and all that kind of stuff. And so that's why, you know, we're using, you know, 30 kilo plus servos and some of those um, control services. Um, but even when you, like, I've seen this before. Again, the great man Edo Sega, we had this big krill, three meter krill extra, and <clears> he'd, he'd turn the power off uh, on the plane, and all the control surface just drooped straight away, just dropped. And he said to me, Do you know how much torque I'm using up that is being used up just to hold the control surface up, just to hold <clears> it in position? And you know, and I think sometimes these big planes and, you know, they get heavier control surfaces and stuff like that. If you've got fully composite wings, it might be a little bit heavier than a balsa kind of thing that you are losing torque in just holding the thing in place. Um, when it comes to, like, the jets and that kind of stuff, well, let's get let's get down to, say, torques, right? Like, let's, let's just yeah. talk about, you know, a, a jet that might be a, a two-metre jet what is your go-to sort of talk, say, on uh, elevator and ailerons? Uh, usually, for me, it's minimum 25 kilos, 20, 25, depending on the geometry you're setting up. And mostly that's because it doesn't need that power, but just to eliminate any possibility of high-speed flutter. Um, the faster you go, the more chance that you've got of that coming. Um, high-speed flutter, you've got jets. Most of those things, a two-meter jet, I mean, I've got guys sticking 200s in, in those things, and like they're doing, they're literally on the case an hour. Well, plus, you know, and... High speed flutter becomes a problem. You know, if you want to eliminate some of that stuff, that's where mass balancing comes in. But for me, on a two meter jet, for instance, it would be a minimum of twenty five kilos. Yeah. Okay. And then if we if we're looking at say a scale plane around that size as well, uh, on a scale plane, for instance, like a warbird, it's got smaller surfaces. Uh, again, uh, I'd still go for a twenty five kilo servo to put it beyond doubt, because you know buying a twelve dollar a twelve kilo servo and saving fifteen dollars just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, but <laughs> Um, again, it depends how you set the geometry. But on a warbird, you could easily get away with a 12 kilo servo if you've got the geometry right, because you do not need that much travel, and the surfaces are usually quite small. So any kind of surface pressure translated back to the servo it, on a warbird is nothing like a jet that's doing 300 games. Yeah, and even so, then on the other side of the spectrum, you know, we've got gliders, and again, what would your typical you know, torque figure look like on a, a two-metre to a three-metre kind of um, glider? A two-metre glider, for instance, you know, they're quite gentle. They're quite easy on it. Again, you need very little travel. If you get the servo arm right, you get away with a six or seven kilo servo on something two metres without too much trouble at all. Uh, but if you want to run two-inch arm on it, well, you're going to have a lot of problems. But, you know, and that's where I see a lot of issues is people running really big arms, not really fully understanding that the longer the arm you put on it, uh, the, greater, the greater pressure you put, you're putting the servo under. And, and to be honest, you know, like when we're dealing with some extreme flight stuff, for instance, that Jace Ducey is recommending two-inch arms, Jace Ducey can handle two-inch arms mm. and that much throw. 90% of the clients I see that were buying those 
they'd be much happier on an inch and a half. They just don't need that yeah, much travel. So definitely. a lot of the times they're flying all around on their lower rate, which is usually about 35, 40% uh, low rate. You're getting very little resolution out of the servo. You're not using it to its, to its greatest extent. Where a guy like Jace Ducia, he needs that because of some of the manoeuvres he does. And to be honest, he's one of the very few people who can handle that kind of thing. Um, so for the rest of us, me mortals, you could get away with a shorter arm, improve the power of your servo, improve the throw of the servo to get more resolution out of it and uh, be happier with it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah I agree with you. I, I, I see that arm issue all the time, especially, you know, you know, when we talk about aerobatic planes, I think this is where torque selection in, is quite important and, you know, taking consideration of geometry, which we'll get into shortly. But the, you know, say a 60cc size plane, what are you, what, what torque for you are you looking for? Again, 25 kilos plus. Uh, for me, and keep the arm reasonably short. If you want to get extremely in the 3D and you want to do, I'll have a lot of throw, I'll be putting you know, 30, 35 kilo plus on it. Um, the more throw that you're going to get with a longer arm, again, you're, you're putting the surface under, you know, the, the servo itself under more pressure. Uh, if you want to do lots and lots of 3D, uh, high performance stuff, yeah, definitely. I'd be going 35 kilos on 60. Yeah, and 100 cc is 35 plus. 35 plus. I mean, I've flown lots of uh, 100 cc stuff, uh, composite ones, with single later on servos, single on the rudder, single on the other. So you're only running five surface um, servos and at 30 kilos and had no problems. But it was set up for iMac. Uh, you know, so we were running inch and a quarter arms, uh, had reasonably long control horns on the surface, and I was only probably going to be at you know, 20 degrees deflection max. Um, on any one surface, and it was great for on that. Never had a problem, but I've seen guys put longer arms on the same setup and start to do a little bit of high speed, induce high high speed flutter, and blow the aileron off. Um, if you're going to do, you know, if you're keen on doing 3D and you want a lot of travel, when you're looking at 45 plus degrees, um, you're going to use pretty long arm. You want to use uh, you know, 35 plus kilos or multiples possibly on, on the aileron. Yeah, that's right. Well, I agree with everything that you said there. Um, and uh, coming back to what you said earlier about trusting the manufacturer, that the, the manufacturers put torque figures in their in in, in their manuals, you know, all from the reputable brands like the, the Compass and the Extreme Flights of the World and the Pilot RCs will sit there and tell you, this is what we recommend because this is what we've tested and, and that kind of thing. So I think that's a, that's a great starting point. When it comes to speed, you know, we can safely say that a 3D, you know, a hardcore 3D uh, is going to need speed, you know, that reaction time. But, um, you know, for the lay person, you know, what is the advantage of a high-speed servo? So your average pilot, nothing, to be honest. You end up putting more expo in trying to slow the thing down. And the problem with putting a lot of expo is at some point you hit that expo curve where it actually, you're going okay, then all of a sudden everything quickens up because... Uh, at some point, you can you can soften everything around the middle, but at some point, it's got to catch up. So as you get to the to the extent of the travel, all of a sudden it ramps up and the thing moves a lot quicker. But you know the guys doing three D who look need something at you know 0.06 of a second. I mean that's extremely fast. And for your average punter, they don't need anywhere near that. You could double that and it'd be fine. They could be working at zero zero you know your point point one two point one six and still be happy and still need a bit of expo to keep the thing nice and soft through the middle. But if you want super fast and you want to do really 
if you're up to it to, to do extreme 3D, a lot of them are going for the, you know, like I say, the 0.6 uh, per 60 degrees second. It's, it's extremely quick. That's alley grade, pretty much. I mean, for me, it's too fast for me. I find I'm slow. I need to slow the servo down by either a lot of expo or slowing the speed of the servo down. Uh, I'm just, you know, while I'm a capable pilot, I'm not 3D, I'm not that 3D capable. I've got limitations and, like I say, it's only that kind of stuff is when you get into uh, the guys at the top end who are really good at this kind of game. Hmm, that's true. I think uh, sometimes we get sucked in by seeing the guns and looking at the gear that they use and thinking that, you know, that'll help us, but sometimes it may not because, you know, we're talking about exceptions to the rule that these guys are elite, elite athletes. You know, call them athletes or elite athletes, and that are committing a lot of time to the to the craft, and and the average punter, he just doesn't have that time to commit and that that, that drive to commit to that level. But uh, when it comes, no, to- or, or the understanding. I mean, it's it's like you say, it's like top cricketers use all kinds of different gear and all that kind of stuff, and they they are athletes. These guys who are doing this stuff, like Jace, he's a professional. He's an athlete. This is what he does for a living. He's got exceptional skills. And he, his hand-eye coordination, he's you know one of very few that can do what he does. Um, sometimes some of the others are kidding yourselves to think, I'm going to be like Jace. It's nice to aspire to that. But I've seen a lot of guys who fly, for instance, when I go back to Chris Wilson's plane, who couldn't fly Crispy's plane, but he could make it look fantastic um, simply because he had the skill level and he set it up the way he wanted to suit him. Uh, but when you got your average punter on, everything moved too quick. It was all too fast. And you, you see it a lot with guys learning to hover. When they're in high rates, they tend to over-correct it and they end up, uh, you know, just tick-tocking away then and eventually falling out of the hover and having to punch out of it. On a lower rate, you find they're actually better at it because they, they're, not put, they're not putting more travel in than they actually require. Yeah. That's true. That's definitely true. Well, okay, let's talk a bit about linkages because, you know, as you've, you've raised, it's an important aspect of... Um, of your control surface hookup. Um, let's start with with the ends of the linkages and, and what you like to see, you know, as far as the actual hookup between servo, you know, the servo end and the and the, um, the control end. You know, what's your preference as far as linkage? Um, my preference is generally for a turnbuckle and a ball link uh, at both ends, uh, depending on the surface you're driving. I've used clevises, and threaded rod with carbon over the top. Well, my preference is for a good quality uh, turnbuckle. Like, uh, the SWB ones were made of titanium. Seacraft makes some stainless steel ones, which I quite like. Uh, I've used some alloy ones, but I found uh, under extreme, they can break at the end of the thread. So I'm a little cautious with those. With smaller models, they're fine. Uh, ball links in most cases for me, but uh, on other cases, I've used uh, clevises, your standard style clevises. Uh, onto an alloy arm. I prefer alloy arms over plastic, but again, depends on the application, the size of the model. But if you're going ball link and you're going to, if you're using ball link, sorry, I'd definitely go onto an alloy arm. You don't want any any uh, side deflection or any bending. Um, when you use a, uh, a heavy duty nylon arm, I prefer a clevis on that, uh, a nice tight fit from the pin. And when I'm talking some clevises, uh, some of the alloy ones with a three mil pin, and uh, a locking pin to keep that pin in place. Uh, I quite like those. They're very handy on flaps, for instance, on jets where you want to drive the flap to its full extent and you get the arm travelling at 180 degrees so that everything's in line. 
so there's no strain on the servo as such. It's pushing directly, like it's full travelled, and it's basically the arm is pointing. Uh, everything's in a straight line, so you you don't get any kind of pressure put on the servo. Uh, a lot of guys they use a lot of that in um, uh, in dynamic soaring, for instance, for high speed. Uh, when the servo is actually maxed out at 180 degrees, uh, everything's pushing directly on the head of the head of the arm. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, yeah, I'm a I'm a ball link fan myself. I've heard other people sort of sell me the concept of clevises and stuff like that, but I've never had any problems and with the you know with 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 ball links. Okay, ball links they will wear wear a little bit, but. Uh, it's a consumable item. It's something you've got to consider in your maintenance, just to check that. So you make, it's a piece, of, it's a piece of nylon, or you know, surrounded by either a piece of brass, or in some cases aluminium. It's something's going to wear. It, it does a lot of work, and you should consider replacing those. I mean, the, I've got guys, some of our sponsored poles, they replace their ball links twice a year because they're doing so much flying, and they just get flogged out. And it's just something you have to consider changing quite regularly uh, if you do lots and lots of flying. But uh, I mean, my. Uh, Tip for most guys, if you're using a nylon, heavy duty nylon arm, I prefer a clevis because it's pushing directly at it. Uh, nylon arms tend to uh, bend sideways. If you're going to use ball links, alloy arms are the, are the go for me, in my opinion. Yeah, okay. The, um, okay, the geometry. Give us a lesson <clears throat> in geometry and what we should be aiming for. What you're looking for, in my opinion, is you want to try and get the most amount of the travel you require, whatever that may be, whether you require 45 degrees or 35 degrees of travel on the surface, you want your servo to be travelling it to 100 to 125%. Uh, so you're using all of its resolution. Now, uh, to achieve that, that's where you, you start playing around with servo arm length and moving it in and out. There's no much point achieving a uh, 45-degree deflection, but you're only using 45, uh, sorry, 50% of the servo travel because you've got too long an arm on it. Move the ball link further down uh, and extend the travel so that you're getting up to 100% uh, or slightly over. And that way you'll find it's much smoother. Things are much, much, it's much better for the servo. It's stronger when you come in closer to the, to the spline. Uh, using a really long arm and using very little of its travel is pointless. You're actually wasting you're wasting your money with buying a whole tight servo. Uh, you can actually come in a bit and uh, use the power and the resolution of the servo a lot better. One of the when it comes when it sorry didn't mean to jump in, but when it comes to throttles, geometry is really important on that too. We see I see some of the worst throttle setups because people seem to have this opinion that I've got a, um, a computer radio, I can change the curve on it. And you can, but I've got to say, just about every aircraft I fly of my own, I've set it up so that I end up, I have no throttle curve anywhere. It's all linear. And that comes from good setup. And what I mean by good setup is you want to make your linkages, you'll find out every throttle arm on a gas motor, for instance, is about, is about one inch. And if you use a one inch servo arm, you can go to slightly, slightly smaller. If you get your linkage length right, you should be about 100% each side. What I see a lot is people go 135 one side on the low side and 45% on the other. And what you find happens then is the servo at the low end is going nowhere while you're advancing the stick. And then all of a sudden, when it gets to a quarter way or um, one third way, it takes off and goes slamming over the other side. And you get this big hole and you try, they try to fix that with uh, a throttle curve, but you end up with a throttle curve that looks like a roller coaster. Um, 
getting that balance right. And don't get me wrong, if it's 85% on one side and 90 on the other, you're pretty close. But once you start getting big gaps, like one's at 135 and the other one's at 40, you need to address that. You need to fix that. And you'll find your motor will be much, much better. It'll run smooth. It'll feel like it's running smoother because you, it just feels like there's a transition through it. It's The servo is, is travelling at one constant speed rather than going, I'm doing nothing, doing nothing, then whoosh, off it goes. Mm. When it comes to throttle servos, <laughs> there's a lot of talk about what to actually use as far as the linkage. Um, mm-hmm. What do you recommend as, you know, and we're mainly talking about gases here that vibrate and that kind of stuff. How do you set up your throttles, you know, yeah. what hardware you're using? I use a soft link, yeah, whether that's a, um, a Sullivan yellow rod or it, it, traditionally I don't run them that long. I mean, the maximum length of mine would probably be about 200 millimetres uh, at max, but I generally use uh, either that Jubro flexi rod or uh, or the Sullivan stuff, I can't remember its name off the top of my head, and um, with a threaded end on each, screwed in the, into the nylon piece, and I drive it that way. That way you, you take all the vibration away from the motor out of the server. And you're using what, nylon uh, linkages? Uh, no, I use a ball link at each end if I have to, or a clevis at the throttle end with a, generally with a plastic arm, you don't intend, I mean, I do the gutter alloy sometimes, depends. Uh, what I've got a hand at the time, but uh, it's not that critical. And, and generally, you only need like a nine kilo servo to be driving the throttle with it too much, but you want something that's precise. People tend to take a bit of a shortcut on the throttle, think it's only a throttle servo, it doesn't matter. It does, because that's when I think people run, I can't get this thing to idle, it keeps stalling on me, the idle changes all the time, it never feels the same. And that's generally because you're using a crapshoot servo, excuse the French, and it never comes back to the same place twice. And every time you make a small adjustment on the trim, the thing quits, and that can can come back to a bad servo, bad bad linkage geometry setup, etc. But also, people forget to change their their throttle trim from the factory setting at four, which is quite coarse, down to say two. I usually run my throttle trim setting back at, at two steps rather than four, which is a factory setting, and all my surfaces are on uh, on a one step. Uh, a lot of people don't even realise you can change that in your transmitter. Yeah. Okay. Well, the well, throttle servos is one of those tricky things, and and when we look at gases, you know, I've seen people try to put mini servos in. But what's your recommendation for the size of servo with um, uh, vibrating motors? I prefer full size, generally because it's usually the small ones uh, are usually powerful enough. That's not a problem. But the gear train and the potentiometer gets a pounding. Um, the, the smaller the servo, the smaller the gear set, uh, and the, the smaller the teeth, the more chance of stripping them and doing things like that. Um, the full-size servo, I mean, I've used $200 servos in the throttle, but <laughs> which seems a bit elaborate, but I had it at the time. But again, that need for precision was really important, particularly with my first couple of gases because I was really uncertain. And I used a, a pretty crappy servo on the first one. I think it was just like a you know, your standard one you used to get with a set, like a five, five, triple five or something, whatever it was. And I could never get the thing consistently idle. It was either too fast or it was stopped. I couldn't quite get it right. And it was just from poor choice of servo and bad bad linkage setup. Uh, spend the money on a servo. One of my favourites used to be the JR8231, which they don't make anymore, but uh, I use 8411s on mine just as a number. But uh, I like that servo because every time I trim it, it goes back to the same place. Yeah, uh, makes sense. 
one of the questions that often get asked, you see it on Facebook all the time for the 3D pilots out there that are that are putting a longer arm on the servo. And mm-hmm. they'll sit there and say, what should my geometry look like when the servo, the aileron is centered? You know, what am I aiming for at the, at the, at the center position that, with the linkage versus at its extremities? So, for example, do I want it, um, you know, at, when it's at its extremities, that linkage is directly straight or, you know, ha- what is the rule of thumb that you, you, you go by when it comes to that look of that linkage and that angle when you're using sort of larger horns? Well, depending on how the servo is actually mounted, you know, if the side mounted flat in, in the surface, for instance, mine's always at 90 degrees. Centre is 90 degrees to the case, uh, and that's centre. And, you know, it's pretty much if you drive the servo from 125 to 150 uh, on the end point, you're not gaining a whole bunch because you're almost, the servo is almost at its full. You know, you can drive them over to 180 degrees if you wish, depending on the brand of servo you're using. Some of them will do that, but generally you can't get it past. Uh, you know, the bay that it's in, it's usually hitting that. You're normally only getting uh, 60, 60 degrees or something like that out of it. So, you know, pretty much, like I say, when I set mine up, mine are always set up at 90 degrees. If, if my preference is for the servos to be in on their side, so the arms pointing straight up. Whereas you find a lot of the, uh, the standard Chinese brands when they come out, they actually sit them top up. And it doesn't make a lot of difference. It's just uh, one of my weird, weird things that I like. I prefer them both traveling in the same position the same orientation rather than one on a clock face and the other one going backwards and forwards but again you still want to you, you still want the servo on 90 degrees of the case when it's at the center um, yeah okay so i'm not agree yeah 90 degree to the case and then that lit that rod is then mm-hmm. if you know if you've got a big oh, let's just say you've got a two inch arm on there right yep you've got obviously the arms really extending far out to the uh, in comparison to the um, the linkage on the aileron. Yep. Um, are you looking that when it's at its extremity that that rod is straight or? Uh, no, no, that's almost different. Depending on again, if you're using uh, the servo on its side, yes, you want it straight, preferable. I mean, if, you, if you're a few degrees out, doesn't matter too much. But when it's with the top up coming out of the surface and the servo arms working like a, on, on a clock face. Uh, if you're using a two inch or a one and a half inch arm, you're gonna to get that ideal. You're gonna be over on quite an angle anyway. Um, where you select that horn, what position it to be in, the factory's already pre predetermined that anyway. Uh, but you'll find that with a two inch arm, on a, you, you'll be you'll be copped over about thirty five degrees anyway, probably a little bit more. Yeah. And what about uh, length? Length of the servo arm versus the length of the the the, the uh, little horn on the um, on the control surface. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen some some videos where you know you go smaller on the servo arm and go bigger on the uh, on the horn on the um, on the surface. That's that that's the preference. If you want to get a what to achieve the travel you require, you want to use the shortest arm you can on the servo and the longest arm on the surface. That's giving your servo the best opportunity and the, and the greatest amount of power that it can get. Uh, I mean, the shorter you go on the surface, the more leverage you're actually giving that surface. It's hard for people to get their head around that, to be honest. But and, the, and where I, I sort of see it the worst is generally you'll find that when you're getting onto your jet is on flaps because you find generally the flaps, um, the horn's well inboard. It's quite short to get a lot of travel out of it because you want to go, you know, you want it to travel 80, 90, 100 mil in some cases. And to get it to do that, you need a pretty short arm. 
uh, uh, control horn on the surface, and that's when it becomes a bit of a problem. You find blowback on flaps is probably one of the worst surfaces. It's one you want to put the, a pretty high-torque servo on. Well, it's interesting because I think a lot of people skimp on the flap servos. They think, oh, I don't use them all the time. I'll just, you know, put some <laughs> average servos on it. But when you think about it, they're probably subjected to more force than a lot of other, other surfaces that you, you generally use. For a longer period of time too. I mean, when you're on a, on a landing approach, I mean, you could have the flaps down for half a circuit, mm. uh, fully deflected and under a lot of pressure. And <laughs> you see a lot of blowback and stuff like that happen with those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting how um, Martin Pickering was talking about how modern servos, how much they can draw or power they can draw and, um, you know, I was talking about the value of power boxes in, in regulation and having, being able to handle the amps and, and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I didn't, I never thought about it from that, that way, but definitely you've experienced the change in servos and the quality and the, the reliabilities of the servos nowadays compared to say you know, 10 years ago, I think, you know, this, this just blows oh, my absolutely. mind. It blows my I mean, mind when we're at the servos. I mean, to get it, to get a, a, a high talk digital servo moving now takes quite a few amps, but if you put a meter on it and actually push the surface with your finger to get it to draw three amps, it's quite easy. It's not difficult to do at all. These big high torque servos are power hungry without question. I mean, and that's where your lead selection becomes important on bigger aircraft too. Buying cheap leads is just nonsensical. But, you know, it, most of your leads are set up for a three, three amp continuous draw before they start to be becoming a problem. But, you know, that's why I sort of I say that people run an individual lead to each servo um, simply because the current draw that you can get out of, particularly on, on a, like a 45 kilo servo or a 35 kilo servo, but you've got two of them, one's binding against the other. The chance of you drawing uh, more amps than your lead can hand was quite good. That's a good point. I've been thinking a lot about um, why planes sometimes crash. And, um, you know, I was, I was at the field a few weeks ago and a guy had his sort of trainer kind of plane just, he goes, it's off the air, I've got no control. And everyone always jumps to the radio system and thinks that, you know, the radio system's failed. And and my theory is, well, if you're having a problem then and it's a problem with the radio, inherent problem with the radio, then we'd be hearing about it all the time that, you know, so-and-so you know, so brand's no good and they're having massive problems and there's recalls <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, and on that particular day as well, if there's radio interference coming from a safety fence, like some people claim that they got interference from the safety fence and all this kind of stuff. And... Well, that means that all the planes should suffer from the same problem and all the people using that same brand. So I'm really now analysing that and sort of working through because there's so many different permutations as to why that plane could crash. You know, the battery failed, the servo lead. But you never hear someone say, I think my servo lead burnt out. I, I, think, I, I think I pulled too many amps through the receiver, you know, um, and it browned out kind of thing. It's always, it just went off the air. It was the radio. <laughs> and uh, there's, there's, actually, there's a guy that I know who's mate has lost three good planes in within like three weeks kind of thing. And yeah. he's put it down to the radio. And so he's like, that's it. I'm getting rid of this radio. I'm going to go and buy Futaba. And I'm like, <laughs> really? Is Futaba the answer to everything? Now, I'm not having got Futaba. I know they've been around for a long time, whatever. But I've seen people fly JR, Spectrum, High Tech, uh, uh, is it FR Sky? Um, mm -hmm. and, yep. and they do it without any problems. All those brands. So why is it that he's having that problem when there's hundreds and thousands of other people got the same radio set up that don't have the problem? It could be something else. It could be a servo lead. 
A lot of times it's just it's bad set up too. I mean, all the people's understanding of 2.4 gig is pretty limited. I mean, I can't tell how many people I've seen come to me and say, I every now and then a brown's out on that corner or something goes wrong there. And you have a look inside and uh, one antenna is behind the fuel tank and the other one's under a piece of carbon. And you, know, well, you realise that 2.4 will not go through fluids and it will not go through carbon. You've really put it in the wrong place, you know. And I've seen satellites, for instance, uh, from the spectrum brand stuck on the back of fuel tanks. You're absolutely wasting your time. You're only getting uh, any kind of direction from one side. And uh, it's, it's pretty important that you put your antennas in the right place. And I've seen, oh, this radio shit, I can't be in its client setup. You know, honestly, it's people the way they set their things up or they get a pretty expensive setup in it and they put a cheap Chinese, like, you know, Chinese switch in it, um, which inadmittedly fails out every now and then. But when you pick the thing up after it's hit the ground, it works. This is the uh, thing. What's the first thing that people do is they go, oh, let's power it up. We'll see. That can't be the problem with powered up. And I'm like, yeah, right. but of course it powers up now when nothing's happening. But when it's yeah. in the air and there's stuff happening, it's a different kettle of fish. Oh, you know, it, it actually annoys me at the naivety of a lot of people and the assumption that it's always the radio system that like I said to this guy, he went and picked up his plane, and you know, it was an average plane. It wasn't anything too special, you know, easily replaceable. And I said to him, what battery were you using? And he goes, oh, this. And he dangles this nickel metal hydride, no-name brand. It was like out of an RC car. It was like some hump pack kind of thing. I said, did you charge it? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I think I did. You know, I said, oh. <laughs> It didn't even look like proper, like normal pack that we see. It was some odd kind of thing. And I'm thinking it's probably that the battery went flat, or you know, um, and you know, I, I'm not a fan of nickel metal hydride packs. I, I, the only the only time I've seen um, failures in the air as a result of batteries is because of nickel metal hydride. I've had one personally, and I'll, I may be totally wrong, but it's just my opinion that I've never had a problem running lipos in my plane. I can plug the meter in and it works every single time. I can charge them quicker. I know where they're at. I feel confident that I know where they're at as far as how much power's in them and that kind of thing. Um, the trouble with nickel, nickel metal hydrides is they can't handle the current draw. So, I mean, as things have evolved and servos become more and more powerful and require more current, you find that with a nickel metal hydride pack, depending on the pack, obviously, but uh, you can it can be 100% when you put your, you put your meter on it and a lot of people fail to put a, a loaded meter on it. They, they, they just yes. plug it in and check it. And you can have been charging for five minutes and it'll tell you it's 100%. Once you put a load on it, it'll drop its guts. But you'll also find with the current crop of high torque servos that have been there for quite a few years now, nickel metal hydrides don't cut it unless you've got a, a large size pack. And most people don't. And their understanding of that, people fail to understand. You know, lipos will give current to like, to like, collapse they're really really good nickel metal hydrides are probably the worst in my opinion for that well i've now moved well on one of my planes i use a nickel metal hydride pack on the uh ignition because mm -hmm. of the voltage that it needs and blah 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 it's just the easiest way to do it but now with all my, my 100 cc's i've got rid of the ignition pack i'm running the tech aero ibex now um and running two decent sized lipos and and they seem to be working working fine nowadays but I, i'm really trying to just get away from nickel metal hydrides and you have lifies or um you know my jet's going to run lifies and my, my other planes run lipos okay rich i want to ask you about um your process of setting up your radio and, and what i mean by is control throws and things like that so 
are you grabbing your radio, maxing out the endpoints, and then setting up your control service, or you're leaving it 100, percent and then then doing it? What is your process to to, to get your your rates and all that set up? Uh, with me, my high rate is always going to be at 100 percent to 125. I generally don't go over that. Um, so I've pretty much you know, set my radio, starting at 100%, see if I can get the travel that I require, the length of the arm, then uh, from a high rate. Um, and my high rate generally is fairly modest. I mean, I've sort of got a pretty good understanding of what I'm capable of um, without getting too silly. And then I work from there pretty much like, okay, this is the travel I want. I want to get to 100%. Um, so my process would be, this is the travel I require. This is the arm I'm going to need to achieve that travel with 100% and go from there. Yeah, and what about with expo settings and stuff like that? Yeah, I generally start about the 30% mark, which for me, um, again, if I get my geometry right and everything else pretty right, I'm usually pretty happy around that percentage without getting too silly. Um, some people don't like a lot of expo. They seem to be a little scared of it, but um, it's only a number. I mean, I've run up to 65% uh, depending on the aircraft, but it's not that's unusual. Normally, 30, 35% is about where I'm at, um, depending on the aircraft and what I need, what I want to get out of it. But also, with some of the modern stuff and the modern radios too, I've actually slowed down the servos when I found they're a little bit fast, and I can take the expo out a little bit. So I find when I'm doing iMac and you're doing stuff like a, a rolling circle where you want really controlled roll roll rate, you can find you hit that expo curve if you've got too much of it, and all of a sudden thing quickens up and you start losing points. But I found with a for me particularly, uh, slowing the speed of the survey down can help in certain modes as well. Yeah. And what about when when you go from you know your high to your lower rates and your mid rates and your expo? Are you adjusting your expo rate accordingly? For, you know, what are you looking for when it comes to yes? Expo? I generally only run two rates. I mean, I'm usually there's three available, and I can run three. But I find with the amount of travel that I have and the way I lot my aircraft set up, where I don't have extreme throws, I don't really need three rates. I'm usually uh, low is my IMAC rate, high rate just for playing around. But um, and usually you'll find there's about a ten percent increase in, in expo as I go up. Um, I mean, rudder occasionally may have a bit more because I'm mode two and I tend to lean, you know, an elevator I tend to lean on that a little bit. But I find with a rudder too, I tend to just my, my thumb gets lazy and starts pulling things around. Does it? <laughs> it feels. I like didn't know you're mode two, mode of champions. I, I fly mode two. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's a bit of a bone of contention with most people, but uh, Bobcat, all the Bobcat drivers, they all get excited about mine too. I think we're all a bit weird. Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's one of those, look, it's just one of those things at the flying field that gives us something to fight about. And it, without yeah. it, imagine what our lives would be. We wouldn't be able to say, oh, you fly the wrong mode and all this kind of stuff, right? And you know what? It's never going to get tired because, you know, we've heard it all before and it continues to happen every, every weekend at a flying field. But... <laughs> uh, fly whatever you like, but mode two is mode of champions, as we all know. Um, well, then you get those really odd guys that fly mode three and four. They're just really strange. Oh, I know. Like <laughs> we should be able to judge people's character by the mode they fly. That's what I reckon. <laughs> we could have stereotype stereotypes for each mode kind of thing. Well, Richo, uh, that's we've covered a lot of ground there. Which you know, who would have thought in about an hour we've been able to talk about servos and linkages, but. Um, I think once you get it right in your head and understand what to look for, then it becomes a really simple exercise. But as you said, I think uh, consult the manufacturer's uh, handbook. And I, I, this is a message for all the heavy model certifiers out there. Learn your stuff. 
because I I have seen models that are that have got running servos that should not be in the planes and they're ticking them off, mm-hmm. and uh, I've, and especially aerobatic models with big control surfaces and stuff like that. And some people say to me, "Oh, but I'm not going to be three Ding it, so I should be okay." And I'm like, "Yeah, but you're going to be flying it fast, so you're going to need to talk anyway." Um, yeah, I've seen it a lot where guys turn up with, you know, this is my plane, I've got it all set up. What do you think? And you, you know, they've got. You know, inch and a half arm on a seven kilo server. I'm going, man, this just. And, and to be honest, the date it's already been inspected and passed, which I find ridiculous. It just shouldn't happen. I mean, when you when you show the guy that you can actually go to full travel and you can push it back with your finger, you know, without too much effort, it's kind of like you're in a bit of trouble. That this is going to explode in the air. Well, I've got. Uh, I know someone that's got a sixty cc size aerobatic plane with fifteen kilo servos and inch and a half arms on it, and I say to him, you know, you're fifteen kilos. <laughs> yeah, it ain't fifteen kilos. It's not that's fifteen right. kilos. You, you're probably putting six to seven kilos at maximum. You probably that's what you're probably getting now. <laughs> oh, but I don't fly three D. Yeah, but you fly fast. <laughs> so, right. so you're doing high speed dives, and then you're pulling out of the dive, and the the wings are sitting there holding on. You know, so you know what are you talking about? It's not about whether you you know you do. And often I find is when you're doing three D, and some of those really violent maneuvers are done at a, quite a slow speed. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not done it uh, unless you're doing some, you know, one of those uh, blenders and things like that. But uh, you'll snap the wing first, probably with some of those maneuvers if the plane's not right. But um, well, three D, you, you know, slow speed, you need more travel, just you know, because you need the you need the the, the air going over a surface that's deflected the wrong way, a, a long way. But when you're actually at high speed, you don't need any of that kind of, you know, you find. We used to find with uh, Chris Blizzard's plane, for instance, his IMAC plane, which had pretty short arms on it, would roll at a higher rate at high speed than his IMAC, I mean, his freestyle plane with two inch arms on it ever would. And that was because it was getting surface blowback. Um, you know, that's hard to, to overcome on a big surface. And besides, you know, freestyle, you don't need a lot of speed. I mean, speed is can be added in there, but it's something you don't do a lot. Everyone's looking for that high offer, slow stuff where you need a lot of travel. And one thing we haven't really talked about is digital versus analog. Cool, yeah. Analog. I haven't seen one of them for a while. Well, I, I've only got digital servos. To me, to mm. go, you know, yeah, you pay a little bit less for an analog servo, but why? It's only a little bit less nowadays than a digital. You know, um, why would you consider an analog servo? And especially, I see it especially in um, scale planes. You know, the, the, the yes, four or five yes. high tech servo. That came out how many years ago now is still the go to because people say I've never had any problems with that service. Like, yeah, well, have you? Tr- as the great man Ido Segev said, it's the only connection. You put a good servo in, and it actually could improve the performance oh, of the plane and, and uh, that kind of thing. So, oh, six, four, fives, man, I can't tell you how many people turned up with those things. Like, don't get me wrong, in their day, they were probably great. I'm not really sure why you want to run an analog servo nowadays anyway, but. You know, we, we're even moving past, you know, with digital and then we're moving into X-Bus, S-Bus, any of those serial bus systems, which are making the servos better and faster. You know, you can send the information quicker, you get more back. Um, it, it's, you know, the digital highway is the way to go. The, the servos are much, much better. Analog is, you know, it's, uh, it's ancient history. You know, it's, um, it's time to move on. Yeah, I think well, the biggest thing for me is the analog is, the unpredictability of the servo as far as centering and stuff like that. And like I like flying aerobatics like you do and nothing beats a servo that you know is going to go back to where it should when you've released the sticks kind of thing. And um, 
you know, it just it all adds up. You know, I like having I like having a crisp flying plane. Like if if you you know, especially when I'm flying aerobatics and stuff like that, that you know, it's going to perform reliably in the same all the time. If I've got an analog servo, I've had some in foamies. In some foamies, I had these cheap rubbishy servos, and literally it could could not center. The servos would mm. not center at all. I ended up pulling them out and putting in, you know, much better quality servos and it, it totally transformed the airframe to something that was decent. But literally every time you went to say wings level, you didn't know whether the wings were going to be level or the elevator was playing up and all that kind of stuff. But um, I, it was I, funny when, when I first moved into iMac, you know, I, I, my sports planes, you know, which were large gas things at the time, I used to think they were okay until I had to fly a straight line consistently. Then all of a sudden I started to realize I need to have a click of trim. This side, they're not even a half a click on the other yeah. side. I could never, and that was because it was just crapshoot servos that you couldn't get to center correctly. They just wouldn't come back to center. And it was only when you sort of start looking at needing a little bit more from your aircraft that you start realizing that, you know, what you put in it and how you set it up makes a huge difference. And you know, it's funny, like, you know, there's lots of guys that they're flying with analog servos and more than happy. Knock yourself out. But if you're going to buy a servo now, I've got no idea why you buy an analog. It just it yeah. boggles me why they do it. Yeah. Well, there's another bugbear of mine that you've raised. The people that will sit there and bang on and, and rave on about some ancient technology that has proven not to be the best because somebody invented something that was better, but they'll still hold on and try to convince you that the 645 server, which was a great server in its day and many people use them and all that kind of stuff, but I don't think even high tech make them anymore. I think, I think they've superseded them. If they were so good, why would they make them anymore? I think there's a new digital version or something like that that replaced it. So it's it, oh, I shouldn't get so worked up. You know, it, it's it's that person that's telling me that that Hobby King servo that they bought for ten bucks is just as good because it's made in the same factory. Richo, you know as well as I do, they're not made in the same factory. It's not some rot and conspiracy against the world that the $10 servo is exactly the same as the $100 servo. It is not the case. And you know how you can tell? <coughs> as I cough. Open the servo up and go and have a look at the rubbish that's inside. I've done that with some servos over time. I go, oh, my God. Where- it is a big difference. Man. Oh, it's – and you talk, earlier you were talking about Japanese. Um, you know, I visited the Jewel Sky factory and – he, uh, he took me through a run through, of, you know, did a video on it, how they make their motors. And he was telling me all what Jules Guy was telling me how he sources, you know, magnets from Japan and bearings from Japan because of the Japanese quality. And then, mm. you know, the, 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 the magnets have to be matched that go in the, into the, the, that, that rotor and, and the importance of that and the quality controls along the line. So I left that factory going, oh, my God, these, these are really good. Like this guy is is really thinking. He showed me the difference in why as he goes for our cheaper motors, we use this. For the, our more expensive motors, we use this. Why? Because this insulation is a lot better than this insulation, but you pay more for it. But, you know, they still will do the job. But if you want something good that's going to be reliable, this is the, this is, you know, the motor that you need to buy. And there's a lot, there's a lot goes into R and D with all of that kind of stuff, which a lot of people, you know, it's got to get R and D's got to be paid for somehow. You know, in a lot of occasions, yeah, it's materials used where they come from, where they're sourced, will change the price. Uh, but you know, a lot of people can, you know, it, it, the R and D to, to find that suitable piece of material, uh, whether it's five dollars dear or ten dollars dear, it's irrelevant. But you know, does it work? Has it made it better? I mean, I've seen this with engines, etc. I mean, the quality engines like Desert Aircraft and Tucson, etc. 
the amount of R&D they put into it and the machinery they use and the lengths they go to to build a motor in comparison to say like an XYZ from China is immeasurably different. And you definitely get what you pay for. And the backup isn't when you have a problem with it, if you have a problem with it, it's, these people need to take care of that kind of stuff. You know, it's the same with uh, with servos is very similar. You know, you know as well as I do that people will shop on price. and that's. But like I said, quality costs money and the development of that stuff is important. And our people in, back in Japan developing the stuff, they prefer to use Japanese sourced uh, electronics because they believe it's better. Uh, and they're proving it to be better uh, to themselves. And, and they're the ones, from my opinion, they know because they're doing their stuff all the time. Yeah, well, I've subscribed to that camp where I will have less models, but what I have will be really good. I'll put good gear in it that I know has been reliable and from, from reputable brands, reputable airframes as well. That is you know, what I want to do. But then you've got the other camp, Richo, which is... <laughs> I just want more and more and more and more. And for me to be able to afford that means I'm going to have to skimp. So I'm going to go and buy the bulk pack of $16 servos off Alibaba that claim to be 16 kilos, but aren't 16 kilos. They're probably six kilos. They just added a one in there for looks. But I don't think we're ever going to win this argument. But the I think the be all and end all is why is it when you go to the local flying field, it's always the rubbishy planes that are crashing by themselves than the good planes. <laughs> I don't see uh, uh, IMAC planes <laughs> falling out of the sky, Richo, do you? Mate, I've got a friend in Melbourne who, um, who always has an opinion about, I can't believe you guys fly those jets. I can't believe you guys spend that kind of money. I could never fly anything that would cost that much. But he's got 150 foam flying models ready yeah. to fly. And he said, oh, that only cost me $300 each. I don't care. I don't know why you need 300 foam flying models. I mean, from, I'm similar to you. I'd rather have one or two really good ones that I really appreciate and uh, fly them and enjoy myself. I can't fly 150 models at the same time and I don't get that kind of enjoyment out of foam aircraft. If you do, that's great. I mean, it's just they're different camps, I guess. Yeah. And I think the, well, I've got a lot of friends that have got a lot of aeroplanes and some of those planes won't be, you know, in a four-year period, they won't be flown because there's physically not enough flying days in a year for a lot of these people that can, can afford to get out and fly every plane they have. And for me, I'm going through this phase where I want less. I want less because I hate having to think, oh, what plane am I going to take to the field? It's just easy to go, I've got three aeroplanes, I'll take that, you know, rather than should I take this one or that one? And that's why, like this Sebart mythos, I'm thinking, do I really need it? I've got <laughs> I've got a 30cc aerobatic plane, which I love. I've got 200ccers. I don't even need 200ccers. One is more than sufficient for me. It's just that you know I kept some when I after I had three hobby shop and I you know got them a good price and all that and I and I thought I'd just build them and so they're sitting there, um, <laughs> and so yeah I'm just, it, I think I don't know it's a stage of life that I'm going through I just can't be bothered building another model and having to have that you know thought process of what am I going to take to the field today but there's plenty of people that will sit there and like you said buy the next foamy and and you know a, a, a question that came to mind that I wanted to ask you that you've been in the industry for a long time. What would you say to those people that think that uh, a lot of these manufacturers are ripping us off and charging us too much? Are these people? Uh, are these manufacturers no. running around driving Ferraris? No, not really. I mean, you've, I find the best built aircraft are usually built by the smartest people. They put the, the most amount of uh, R and D into their product. Uh, I mean, not everything's perfect. I mean, I've sold a lot of good, high quality models that have small issues, you know, and that can be paint, small ding here and there. Things happen, but you know. 
you will not buy a perfect model. There's always something that needs doing. But the best designed ones, you know, we're talking about ex- ex- you know, every comparison, like the extreme flight in comparison to some of the cheaper Chinese ones, they look the same to a point till you get really close. But those guys don't release a model till it's been out in the field, hammered, given a hard time, adjusted, changed, modified until it's suitable for market. And they're... they're reflection on what's suitable for market is quite different to someone who just wants to make a handful of money by selling a container load of airplanes. And, you know, to me, those guys are leading the way, by example. You know, those, the aircraft from the best manufacturers, they cost a little bit more. And we all, all I think not, maybe not all of us, but I think most of us aspire to be owning uh, a composite aircraft or a, a, a well-built extreme flight rather than a cheap Chinese one. Kind of looks okay, but they rather blew off, you know. And uh, those guys put more time, more effort, and it does cost more. There's no question they have to cover those costs. Well, I think for me, what changed my mind in the direction of the models that I bought was flying an extreme flight plane. I flew mm. it and went, I literally, not joking, I flew the plane. I had another plane that was similar size, different brand, won't mention the brand. They used to be made, it used to be an Australian company when I moved overseas. They might give it away. But, <laughs> and I went, it's like chalk and cheese. I was literally, it was only a small plane, 48 inch electric, but the 48 mm. inch Extreme Flight Extra is an amazing model for its size. Absolutely amazing model. Compared to some other brands that I, that I flew, it was just chalk and cheese. So I ended up selling the other brands. And then I said to myself at that point, I remember the, I remember the moment where I just said, that's it. This is my direction. I now see, see that- the value of a good flying model and the enjoyment that it gave me knowing that that thing was phenomenal i didn't that's where the, di- the difference lies you remember we were talking a couple of minutes ago about uh, they're all made in the same factory and i've flown some aircraft that are made in the same factory as the extreme flight factory and they don't fly as well because they're designed by a completely different person true and for a, and their their goals are not exactly the same as a guy like Christensen, for instance um th- that stuff's well engineered other stuff's just made to look like an aircraft and they can be made in the same factory. The factory will make exactly what you want if you ask them to. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, it's, and look, no disrespect to anybody, you know, and I'm not trying to pump anybody's tyres up. You know, Hinson stuff is well designed, well well tested, well flown, and I've never flown a bad extreme flight. Uh, you know, Pilot, again, another good brand. And I'm not trying to sort of look after the guys that bring that in, but, you know, that quality is people, there's reasons why people keep going back to it and bringing it up because it is good. That's what I always say. If you look at the top aerobatic competitors or the guys that are into aerobatics, if you run an aerobatic event like I used to down here, you will mm-hmm. see two brands now, Pilot mm-hmm. RC and Extreme Flight. And there's a reason for that, that we're not running to Hobby King to buy a Hobby King aerobatic model because that design is not in there. The quality of the build's not there. We pay more for it, but... You know, when I was bringing the 3D Hobby Shop stuff, I'd buy all these spare parts, which I ended up throwing out because nobody was crashing the planes. Why weren't they crashing the plane? The planes weren't failing. I didn't have wings breaking off and, and things like that. And look, if you try hard enough and hammer it enough, you probably are going to break a wing. But um, but it's going to be pretty hard to do it, especially if Jace Ducey has been testing it because, you know, nobody, none of us are going to fly as hard as him. But, um, yeah, it's it, it's an interesting, you know, we've shared a few opinions there. There's going to be some people that disagree, but, oh, well, each to their own as long as you're having fun. But just don't complain when your, 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 your rubbishy plane hit the deck. 
because you put some rubbishy servos in that failed and ran it on nickel metal hydride battery. I think that's what we've learned. The biggest takeaway is ban the nickel metal hydride on your servos. No more. Oh, I mean, battery technology has come a long way. And, and, and that's another subject we'll need to cover one day is a lot of people have no understanding about the difference in chemistry, uh, whether it's a 1S or a 2P pack or a 4S, 4P pack. When you start talking like that, it's like, you must be talking Pythagoras. They really don't understand it. it it's and, and it is fairly. It's not basic, but once you get your head around it, it's it's quite. You'll get a better understanding once you know what your batteries are capable of. It's not just a power source. It doesn't matter. I'll just throw it in and it'll work. It's not quite like that. Uh, this whole this horses for courses and certain batteries should be used in certain uh, certain circumstances. Like you say, with a nickel metal hydride on ignition, don't have a problem with that. Current draw is very very low. Uh, on something with a lot of servos on it, it's not my cup of tea. I wouldn't be going there. Yeah, it's true. Now, Rich, I normally ask people what's their favourite model. I've already asked you that before. I think it was your pits or something <laughs> last time. Well, have you got any, uh, got any models on the workbench that you're, you're building at the moment? I think we talked about last time. I do, but I haven't finished it. It's uh, the Hanging Iron Ultra Stick just to play around with. But uh, I did a bit of work on that tonight, actually, before I started talking to you. But, did you? Um, yeah, but I've got a couple of other clients' models on the bench. I just finished another on the fish day for the... Uh, the UAV project, and that's kind of cool to get that done. And uh, I've got a, uh, a couple of other clients' planes on, which is keeping me busy, which is good. Have you been out flying? No, <laughs> sadly, sadly not. No, I've been watched a few other people fly, but I haven't been out and do my own. Here we are sharing our opinions, and we don't go flying. It's no, no. It, I'm, I'm hoping to remedy that very soon. I, I went to a jet meet last weekend, and uh, I really enjoyed being around the people and and doing that again. And I didn't take my uh, uh, my jet with me um, just simply because I've just sold houses and I've shifted and I'd fuel in one area, transmitter in a different place, yeah, and the, yeah. the turb and the, and the turbine was somewhere else. So it was just all getting too hard. But I was I was pretty keen to get the Avanti out and give it a bit of a, a bit of a squirt. But I was a bit jealous of all the guys flying in the nice sunshine. Well, I I was thinking as as I, as I record this, which is a few weeks before it's actually been put to air. There's a, a, a jet get together this coming weekend, and uh, I was planning on maidening my Viper jet at that event, and I just don't have my, I just don't have my ducks lined up to get there. Yeah, but <laughs> I'm, I'm aiming for there's this Wangaratta Jets event coming up in in early April, and I, and I think I'm going to sign up for that, and I'll, I'll take it there in a few days of fun with the turbo uh, guys. Wangaratta was a great event. I went down to it uh, two years ago. That's right. The last one got cancelled because of COVID, but uh, great place to fly. Good people. You should come down. I can't, I, I can't make it this year, unfortunately. I, I talked to the guys the other day, but um, great event. Really, really enjoyable. But this um, Viper Jet is, I'm not sure it exists, Andrew. I've heard a lot about it. But oh, don't you get that... on my back? <laughs> come on, man. Like, how long have you had this thing? Oh, I've, Richo, I'll give you the, the succinct answer. I've had it since like March or May or something last year. We then got locked mm -hmm. down. Remember, I'm in Victoria. They locked us down mm -hmm. for anything. Someone sneezes, we're locked down. So went More building time. More went, building time. I built everything in the first lockdown. We were open for like a month maybe. Then we got locked down again. And we had winter in the middle of it, which if you've lived in Melbourne, you know what it's like. In winter, you miss out on flying. Like it's hit or miss whether you're going to get a weekend. And anyway... I go skiing in winter, Richo, so, you know, it's good weather to go skiing. Um, and so then we were in lockdown until October, and then I had these other things on the weekend. I had one opportunity, but I hadn't flown anything, so I didn't want to go and fly it without any practice kind of thing, and literally haven't had that many things. And, and then summer comes, and I wasn't keen on flying on a stinking hot day. I just don't <laughs> like flying when it's stinking hot. So Wangaratta Jets event. 
I'm hearing excuses, Andrew. I'm going to be there. Uh, I'm going to be uh, there. All right, we're going to hold you to hold you to this. You I'm going to go. Uh, I'm going to go and book my accommodation for it because it's going to book out quick. So I'm going to go and book my accommodation. And I'm going to be there, and I'm going to take. You know what I'm going to do? I'm actually going to get someone to film me flying the maiden flight, just to shove it up everybody that's been on my back about flying this Viper jet. But I, it well and truly exists. It's sitting in my office, and I see it every day, and I say hello to it, and I say yes, it's going to come. So <laughs> actually, I want to do a couple of things to it. I want to just reconfigure how I've set up my flaps and stuff like that. So I need just a day to just go through it, double check everything, check my CG because I've got some new batteries for it and uh, and then I'll be confident and geared up. And I'm just not – I've got to go and film motorbikes on Saturday, Richo, so that's my day that I need to use. So <laughs> anyway, Richo, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Flat Out RC podcast once again. We'll probably have you back at some point in time when I can think of another topic to leverage your expertise. But – Big thank you again. Tell us about your the business. If you want to buy JR gear, get it from RC Depot RC, Australian. Web address is what? rcdepotaustralia.com.au? Uh, rcdepot.com.au. Have you got plenty of stock? Man, I've got, well, I've got another shipment coming this Friday and there's been surveys been selling like crazy. People are building stuff all over the place. It's great. Um, yeah, got plenty of stuff, plenty of transmitters. Everything's in stock at the moment. It uh, all will be completely topped up by Friday, mate. Excellent. Well, well done, Richo, and all the best. Thanks, dude. Appreciate it. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. That's it for another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast. Big thank you to Steve Richardson aka richo for joining me on the podcast really enjoyed that chat i uh, hoping to bring more you know if any of you got any suggestions as to who you might want on the podcast or some information that you'd like to have you know find out more on or i'll see if i can find an expert that can answer those questions then jump onto the flat out rc webpage www.flatoutrc.com.au go to the contact page and send me an email and uh, we'll see if we can help out or or subscribe to the flat out rc facebook page or instagram page um, and send me a message and don't forget a video is coming out. It may be out by now. Uh, may not be, depending on how, how I place time-wise. But the Flat Out RC YouTube channel, uh, jump on there and subscribe as well. We'll be back next week. Uh, happy Easter for those that celebrate Easter. It's coming up uh, this coming weekend. Um, no doubt lots of people will be out flying. I know a big lighting event out at Gerildery. Um, back on. And of course, we've got the Wangaratta Jets event coming up the weekend after that. And there's plenty more events coming. It's going to be busy, busy next few months with events. So hang in there. We'll get through the next few months and it's going to be a truckload of fun. So thanks for joining me again and have another great week. Talk to you next week. See ya.